This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Today's episode also contains mention of depression and suicide. Please take care while listening. In general, if you if you see it, you're thinking that the, the incident happened yesterday, not before five years. There is no real response from any humanitarian or government in that area. Actually, we don't know what's the reason. It's not like the incident happened before one year. It's more than six years to this incident, but there is no response from anyone. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode. This is Annie Scheel, Senior Advisor for the United States at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. And Mark Arlasco, Military Advisor from PAX. Today's episode centers around a single airstrike and the many reverberating effects that followed long after the debris was cleared. We're talking about the 2015 bombing of Hawija, Iraq, by the Dutch military during the war against ISIS, and all that has resulted in the aftermath of that attack. And today, we're excited to welcome expert Saba Azim from PAX, who has spent a lot of time researching this strike and its impact. And I'm actually going to hand over co-hosting for this episode to her. So without further ado, over to you, Mark and Saba. Saba, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience in Hawija? Thank you for having me, Mark. Um, So I lead work on civilian harm, as well as other human security-related topics in Iraq. So Havidia crossed my professional path back in 2019 here in the Netherlands, um, and we learned of the huge impact that a single strike caused by the Dutch military in Havidia years before, in June 2015. As a Netherlands-based organization, it was very concerning for us to see it take several years for the Dutch military to finally accept that responsibility. As a result, box, as well as researchers from Utrecht University's Intimacies of, Re- of Remote Warfare program, decided to research the strike and to look at how it happened and, and the impact it had on the surrounding civilians. We worked on the ground with an Iraqi NGO called al Ghat. I was also able to travel to Havija a couple of times um, and actually just returned from there last week uh, to see myself the first-hand situation uh, on the state of destruction and also to talk to civilians who had survived the strike and unfortunately are still suffering from it six and a half years later. So what exactly happened the night of the strike? Let Saab and I walk you through what we know. So this is in 2015, and the Dutch military is involved in a war against ISIS, of course, together with a bunch of other coalition of states, including the United States. So war is raging in Iraq as ISIS is rapidly gaining territories, and there was heavy fighting uh, between the coalition partners as well as ISIS in and around Kirkuk governorate. ISIS had assumed control of the city of Havija, which lies about 50 kilometers west of the city of Kirkuk, a year earlier in June 2014. They've taken over a large warehouse in the industrial neighborhood and are not only producing, but also storing car bombs and IEDs in this makeshift factory, which had been used against the Iraqi as well as the coalition security forces, often harming many civilians in the process. So the coalition prepared to strike their target, the IED factory. They conducted a collateral damage assessment prior to the airstrike, 
and they find that the risk to civilians was low. The only expected collateral damage that they noted was a single shed. And to minimize the risk to civilians, they planned to use a low collateral damage bomb with delayed fuses to minimize the blast effects and to strike at night when they assumed the industrial neighborhood would be empty of civilians. And so on June 3rd, a few minutes after midnight, Dutch F-16 strike aircraft fly over Hoeja and drop their munitions on the IED factory. The first bomb failed to detonate. The second bomb exploded. What they don't account for is the large amount of explosives and bombs already present inside the factory, which could cause a large secondary explosion. Nor do they factor in that there are people living in the industrial neighborhood, and that this area is also surrounded by regular residential areas. Dozens of families live nearby, including many internally displaced persons coming from other districts. So when the bomb strikes, there is a massive explosion. It extends to 400 feet, or 120 meters, with a visual shockwave of at least 750 feet, or 230 meters from the target. The coalition's post-strike battle damage assessment later finds that 136 buildings were confirmed destroyed, while more than 500 additional buildings sustained damage. The next day... Reuters and local Iraqi news outlets report that over 70 people had likely been killed by the airstrike, including many civilians. But those 70 fatalities would represent just a fraction of the people who were in one way or another harmed by the strike, right, Saba? Exactly. If you actually take a closer look, you will see that the airstrike and the subsequent explosion caused so much more harm than the 70 casualties alone. In Havija, hundreds of people were made homeless, They lost their jobs, they lost access to medical care, and of course have been mentally affected by the trauma. There are still a lot of long-term effects that a single bomb causes, and it may not be as easy to see. It is high time that we actually start looking at such long-term reverberating effects. So our first guest, Mohammed Abdul Karim, he's the head of programs at the Iraqi NGO Al-Ghad. And he's been conducting research on the aftermath of the bombing for over three years. Can, can you tell me where were you or, or how did you learn about uh, the bombing of Hawija? Uh, we heard it in 2015. Uh, we heard it, we was in Kirkuk and we heard about the voice of the, the bombing because it was a huge bombing. But actually in that period, we don't. We didn't know who is responsible for this bombing. And from 2019, we heard about that the Dutch is responsible for for this. So it was around this time that Al Ghad actually began to collect the names of the people who had died. We have a mobile team who were visiting the families, and they are conducting the the interviews and record these interviews. Also during our search, we are. St- starting to create a full database for all of these victims and categorize all of these people according to their damage, who are affected by their body, who are affected by his income, his resource, his building. And during our previous project, 
we conducted uh, about uh, 190 interviews for these people. What we learned from these interviews about the immediate impact of the airstrike was extremely devastating. Uh, when the pump happened, it's happened in, at night, and according to what the victims shared with us during our research interviews, uh, that they affected. There is some people who lost their families, some people who lost their their arms, their eyes. In that period, there the hospitals was controlled by ISIS, and and the ISIS will not support these families. Only supported and uh, provide healthcare for the uh, ISIS uh, members. Uh, therefore, they uh, they went to another hospital in like Nainawa uh, to maybe can uh, provide health services to themselves, their families. Uh, also, a lot of many buildings are destroyed, fully destroyed. Also, there is partial damage to another buildings like markets, car show, uh, factories, because it's an industrial area. It's the main source for provide the people in Hawija with their incomes because a lot of people who are working in this area, but there is not only the industrial area are affected because also there is three neighborhoods around this area. It's also affected by, by the pumping uh, because most of the, the houses are damaged. Also, the, the governmental offices also damaged. There is a electrical station also damaged. Uh, also, the the water network in the neighborhood. So, Saba, listening to Muhammad's account of the immediate or direct civilian harm effects, it seems that the bombing of Hawija was one of the largest single losses of life during the air war against ISIS. It, it also hurt many civilians and damaged their homes and workplaces. And clearly, this knowledge was out there to some extent. But it took years for the Netherlands to admit their role, and even longer for any assistance to get to the people of Hawija. So here in the Netherlands, we only learned of Dutch responsibility for this event in October 2019. So this is four and a half years after the airstrike actually happened. So four and a half years in which civilians in Hawija did not get any answers, they did not get any assistance. And it really begs the question of, if this was such an extraordinary event, then why did it take so long for it to be recognized and become this widely reported on? To help us better understand this question and the Dutch role in the strike, I spoke to a Dutch journalist about how Hawija was reported on in the Netherlands, as well as in Iraq. My name is Judith Neurink. I'm a journalist from Holland who has lived in Iraq for over a decade. Um, I've been working for Dutch media, but also international media, and I wrote, uh, I always forget the number, I think eight books, mainly on the Middle East and uh, quite a bit on ISIS. Judith first visited Hawija in 2018, some six months after ISIS had finally been driven out of the city. What I saw was that a, a huge part of the city was in ruins, and I was really like, how is this possible? What did I miss? Um, I was with a with an officer of the uh, security forces, and he told me, "Oh, th that was a, there was an explosive factory that um, that blew up, as if that was everything that declared it." And um, uh, of course, when I got home, I, I looked into it and I understood what happened. But it took 
until in 2019, until we really understood what had happened. In 2019, um, Dutch media came out with the fact that this was um, a Dutch bombing by Dutch planes, and also that the the damage was was much bigger than um, than had been expected. So Saba, this is what I just can't wrap my head around. How is it that we have an airstrike that causes so much damage? That is clearly public knowledge that many people have died and a city partially lies in ruins. And yet we don't learn who's responsible until years later. You know, Mark, I was living in and working in Iraq when ISIS was defeated and when Havija was was liberated. And I've been working in the Netherlands for several years now. And to be completely honest with you, I'm still not sure I understand how this could happen and how this could actually go unreported, both in Iraq and here in the Netherlands. So can you walk us through what happened in the Netherlands in the days and years following the military operation? So what we do know is that the coalition authorized the airstrike on the factory back in May 2015 and two Dutch F-16 planes carried out the mission and bombed the target the following month, so in June 2015. So from the battle damage assessment reports that that were later declassified, it seems that it was immediately clear to the pilots that there was definitely a huge secondary explosion. In fact, we can read that the coalition notes that the destruction of over a hundred buildings and damage to many hundred more The civilians we spoke to shared that the buildings and houses were impacted at varying degrees as far away as five kilometers from the site of the airstrike. Yeah, I read that assessment. The coalition even acknowledged that reports about civilian casualties were credible. Exactly, which really isn't surprising when you take into consideration that they saw the extensive damage to the buildings and that there were both people living in the area that was targeted as well as the area surrounded by regular residential areas. And it seemed that the then Dutch Minister of Defence received this information as well on around 15 June 2015 in a classified report from the United States military. This is less than two weeks after the airstrike. But Parliament here in the Netherlands is never informed. It's not until three years later, in April 2018, that the Ministry of Defence shares with Parliament an update about Dutch military involvement in Operation Inherent Resolve, the anti-ISIS coalition led by the United States. It is this update that mentioned that there have been four incidents of Dutch military action that possibly led to civilian casualties and that these are still being investigated. But there aren't any specifics yet. There's no mention of locations, precise dates, or even of the casualty estimates in this update. Very true. But it is a very significant development because what happens next is that a small group of very brave Dutch journalists look at the description of these four incidents and see a possible link with one of them and the airstrike on Havija. So Dutch media outlets NOS and NRC start this investigation and then in late 2019, they are able to publish a report that confirms that the Dutch military was indeed responsible for this mass civilian casualty incident in Havija. Jeez, that, that's incredible. But, you know, it's, it's also just deeply saddening because from my experience, this is not a one-off incident. Time and again, we have seen Western militaries are not transparent about civilian harm impacts in their operations. Reports are contested, denied, or even swept under the rug at times. I mean, we've recently seen this with the alleged cover-up of the U.S. military strike in Baghouz, Syria. And 
We also discussed this a bit in the previous episode on our podcast called In Search of Answers. In these types of coalition warfare, it often becomes really easy to hide behind the collective. When single militaries cannot be identified as perpetrators, it becomes too easy to shirk responsibility for individual civilian harm events. And even now in 2022, it seems we're not there yet in learning the full story of Hawija. So you're a, a Dutch journalist. I'm curious about the Dutch perspective here. Do you feel that the people in the Netherlands now have all of their questions answered or are there matters that the government and the military of the Netherlands still need to disclose? Well, there is a, a research going on. There is a special commission that is doing the research because of course we still need to know um, what was actually known about Hawija when this bomb was dropped? How much um, uh, of the knowledge behind the decision to drop it was actually shared with the Dutch? I think also um, Dutch people, um, they really want to understand why it had to be a bomb on an explosives factory and how it could be possible that um, from the beginning, Reuters, three days after it happened, knew that there were two tankers full of explosives outside that factory and that there were a lot of places where the main ingredients that, that were, were used for the uh, explosives that were also all over the place in that area, which all made this explosion much worse than it would have been if it had been a normal bomb that was dropped on a normal factory. You know, I'm not really sure there can be anything like a normal bomb on a normal factory. But if there ever was, Havija surely wasn't it. Yeah, you'd think that even though Hawija maybe didn't make international headlines, it surely would have been big news in Iraq at the time. But when I spoke to Judith about her experiences in first learning of this airstrike and impact, and I walked away from that experience, from that conversation, with a, a whole different impression. I was living in, in Erbil, the capital of the Kurdistan region uh, of Iraq at that time. Uh, and to be quite honest, I have really dug deep into my memory and I can't remember getting very much about this uh, terrible explosion because it was huge. Uh, I also looked up and I saw that uh, Reuters within a couple of days came out with the news and the extent of the explosion and even uh, a number of, of victims that seems quite credible. Um, but in Kurdistan, we, we didn't really pick it up very much as big news. We were very much focused on Mosul, we were very much focused on ISIS as such and Havija was, was seen as the center of things uh, for uh, for for ISIS uh, and um, yeah we we really out there everybody thought um, Hawija people and ISIS that was the same everybody in Hawija was supporting ISIS they were all with that group it took quite a while before people started to understand that that was different so one of the reasons Hawija has been overlooked is prejudice. And as we heard Judith explain, Havija just didn't have the visibility of other cities caught up in the war. But it was also burdened by this association to ISIS, as it is a Sunni Arab city, and that created a massive backlash against anyone there. Such prejudice was, 
and still continues to be especially strong in the Kurdish regions. When uh, Kurdish fighters, Peshmerga fighters, were captured during the war with ISIS, they were brought to Hawija. And ISIS uh, sent out videos of these uh, guys, these Peshmerga fighters, in cages, on trucks, being driven through the city of Hawija. And people stood around and were cheering uh, uh, on this. Uh, that was, was an impression that really stuck with everybody. Um, so even after the, the liberation of Hawija, most people still thought that that town was completely in the hands and, and, and not only the town, the minds of the people also was in the hands of, of ISIS. So that means Hawija is not getting onto the map. Uh, it's not visible for a lot of my colleagues, uh, not even the Iraqi colleagues. And don't forget the prejudice. The prejudice is also there with my Iraqi colleagues. Many of them don't want to go to Hawija because they still think it's Daesh, it's ISIS. And what is even more heartbreaking is that we see that this prejudice not only meant that the airstrike was hardly reported on, but this also meant that people in Hawija have been largely excluded from the assistance and reconstruction efforts following the war against ISIS. You know, civilians in Havija see aid and funding go to nearby Mosul, and they're deeply resentful. You know, of course, Mosul was a much larger city with destruction at a much larger level. But how Havija is still largely ignored when it comes to humanitarian and rehabilitation initiatives is beyond me. Well, immediately after the bombing, of course, to 15, ISIS was still there. And in the first two years, people tell me nothing happened. Uh, there was no rebuilding, electricity was cut, uh, sewage, of course, was damaged, there was no water. Uh, so a lot of people left for the villages that were also still occupied by ISIS. Then after the occupation, um, and the Havija was one of those cities that hardly got any help from the Iraqi government. Um, Havija, which has always been seen as a, as a radical Islamic town, um, was neglected, like it was before, uh, during the uh, Iraqi governments before uh, ISIS came. Um, so in that sense, um, before ISIS and after ISIS didn't really make much difference. Um, the people in Baghdad look at people in Awija as, as Sunni radicals. They don't like them. These dynamics created a situation where the city was shunned and the population suffered because it never became a priority. Right, and that exacerbated the long-term effects of this bombing. So without attention, the infrastructure wasn't repaired, and the people had to rely on themselves because nobody else was there to help them. And now we're sitting here six years later, and we've been mentioning these long-term or reverberating effects of the airstrike for some time now. But how have people in Huija suffered from the bombings aftermath, Saba? So we partnered with Muhammad's organization, Al-Ghad, towards the end of 2020 to research these long-term civilian harm effects. While doing research and speaking to witnesses, survivors and experts, we found that people have felt the reverberations of this one airstrike in many aspects of their lives. People were harmed economically, they got displaced, and they continue to suffer from long-term medical problems. Children have dropped out of school, people have been and still remain psychologically traumatized. It is even difficult for me, even today, to grasp the full impact, partly because the industrial neighborhood where the target was located was such a vital area for the people in Havija. 
this area it was as i mentioned it is the, the main source of the income of these families because uh, in the morning all of people are going to this area to work because there is a lot of factories there uh, for ice for flour for to also another for uh, for another another works uh, and when the they targeted this this area it's it's um, like many people who loses their their work uh, before the because the incident but when they are working before uh, it's it's was a so important area for them so in one night many people lost their places of employment the shops or factories they owned businesses that they sometimes had worked for all their lives or that had been in their families for generations i heard of someone who um, before had a, um, a big car shop where he was selling cars. And in that shop, uh, there were uh, cars, of course, to look at, to be sold. Um, and he lost in that explosion $50,000 worth of uh, cars and, and uh, the shop and everything. Uh, he had a good life and now he has to work for someone else for his income. So his life changed completely in that sense. And it is incredibly important to note that these and other forms of economic harm could lead to further instances of harm that you might not predict. For instance, child labor has increased dramatically after the airstrike. These families who lost their, their fathers or their brothers who were responsible for this, they, they currently they don't have any anyone to uh, to support their incomes there therefore the children of this family are start to work like a child labor this is a lot currently when you when you are going to Hawija we can see a lot of like child labor cases who are working because when you ask them why you are working because they informed we lost our father or our older brother and there is no one come to us and support us therefore they 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 left their school their education they they left the the schools so the airstrike is actually affecting multiple generations exactly and in more than one ways the explosion was huge hundreds of people got wounded in the explosion itself or because of the debris which was flying around but Havija was an isis occupied territory at the time and this meant that people couldn't access the medical care they actually needed. We've seen civilians who had to get their limbs amputated because their wounds got infected, people who've lost their hearing abilities or who have lost their sense of smell because of the injuries to their faces. Many civilians also lost their sight. There's this one boy whose experience is so saddening to hear. So he was in his parents' garden when the airstrike occurred. In this explosion, the family's car exploded as well, and burning fragments hit this boy. His face got burned so badly and has been disfigured since. And every school he goes to, he gets bullied because of, of how he looks. And when I last spoke to his mother a week ago, she told me how he's now completely stopped going to school altogether. Wow, Saba, that's, that's really horrible. You know, it, it also points to the psychological impact of the war that we often seem to forget about. Muhammad told me that the psychological trauma is a big concern in Hawija today. Uh, there are some people who want to, after three or four years of the bombing, uh, they want to, to kill himself. They, there is a, a man uh, who is uh, fire himself. 
by by oil, but uh, the, his families can take him to the hospital and also another a second time they they try to to drop his himself from the building because he because he don't affect in his body but because the the force of the pumping and the huge incident that happened he he affected by by his mind he he don't know his his member families and currently his his family are during the interviews uh, they informed us that all of days that we have to sit put a people make a one of us to sit with him to to monitor him uh, because he because maybe he he go out to the street and make the car uh, attack on him some of his uh, children cannot go to the work some days uh, because they have to control uh, to and to monitor his father also his wife uh, she informed us that she cannot do any of their home job uh, for cooking because she afraid that this 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 guy will maybe kill himself okay so mohammed i i would like to ask you about displacement because when the bombing happened it forced a lot of people to leave hawija one they didn't have a home anymore because it was destroyed by the bombing two there was combat between the coalition forces and the isis forces and so people are leaving after all these years now is displacement still an issue for Hawija and and have people returned uh regarding uh, this point uh as you mentioned during the the incident um a lot of families who left Hawija because they know that the Hawija was dangerous so dangerous area uh but after the the liberation of Hawija uh, many peoples are came back to to their area to to their to Hawija but not to their neighborhoods be, because it's uh, still damaged uh, they rent houses in another neighborhood but there are also some people who are still living uh, living out of Hawija because they they don't have uh, any because if they they will come back to to Hawija they don't have house or or money or there is no work and we conduct some interviews out of Hawija for in the in the Tikrit uh, because they informed us we want to come back to our uh, original region to my to our relatives and to to the area that we birthed that we born in but we if we came back to Hawija uh, if we come back to Hawija uh, there is no work there is no health it's like as I mentioned it's maybe if, if any person who from Netherlands or any, from any area and visit this area, he was thinking this incident happened yesterday, not like after uh, after six years. Saba, clearly you and Mohammed were able to get a good sense of the impact of the airstrike on the people in Hawija. And you visited the area multiple times yourself. Now, from what Mohammed says, it seems there's not a lot of reconstruction going on. What did you find out when researching this? Is the industrial area being rebuilt? Are people resuming their work? This has been extremely disappointing um, because like Mohammed pointed out, you don't really see much happening in this area. And this is rather remarkable because the Dutch government, once they had acknowledged um, and taken responsibility for this airstrike, uh, they pledged around 4 million euros to be given to two UN organizations. Uh, and that is support 
that is supposed to contribute to reconstruction efforts. But when I got to Havija in November last year, and a couple of weeks ago, I saw some billboards with the Dutch flags on it, but there was nothing behind those billboards. And the authorities I spoke to were rarely consulted on the reconstruction needs or the projects on the ground. In short, civilians aren't seeing a lot of this money being spent in a way that actually helps them. And, and here's Judith again, who came to a similar conclusion. But most of the people actually uh, in Avija, who I spoke to, told me that they were only able to rebuild shops, homes, uh, workplaces, um, by getting loans from family members outside, um, from aid organizations sometimes, but it was mainly the people in Hawija who had to look after themselves. And still now, um, people are complaining that aid is not coming to them. And the complaints now, uh, of course, are towards the Dutch who were responsible for this, for this attack, for the explosion. And four million euros has been put aside for this by the Ministry of Defense. And two organizations uh, have been um, asked to um, to take care of, of, the, of the money, and um, that's IOM and uh, UNDP, and they are supposed to uh, not help the victims, uh, uh, but they are supposed to help the city as, as such, as a whole. So they, are, they get money which will be used on infrastructure, on electricity, um, getting to work again. Um, and that process has hardly started yet. Um, so here we are in 2015, uh, there was this explosion. We're in 2022 and still, uh, you, if you go to Awija, there's still people who are rebuilding. There's still a whole area that is in ruins um, and there is hardly any aid coming in. Why is it that those 4 million euros don't reach the people who need it, the people who are affected by the airstrike? Judith found that this actually has a number of causes. There's corruption at various government levels in Iraq. There are multiple militias manning checkpoints around Havija who need to be paid off. Uh, and accessing Havija continues to remain a challenge. But it is also because the Dutch government is channeling money to large international organizations rather than to local civil society. These are often expensive organizations who need money to pay for security. Uh, they have a lot of overhead costs and have relatively expensive international staff on their payrolls. So essentially, people in Huija first were the victims of a brutal occupation by ISIS. Then they suffered from the coalition attack. And then they were marginalized again by the government. And they aren't receiving a lot of international aid either. They're in a place where nobody appears to be helping them. Exactly. This is extremely disconcerting. And this is something both Mohammed and Judith warned of, of these potential negative effects of leaving these victims' needs completely unaddressed. Um, as far as we can see, none of the victims, and there is, of course, hundreds of people who got injured, injured and there are still thousands of people who are missing, none of the victims uh, will actually get cash in their hands as they are expecting. And here we have a big problem because this leads to frustration. People think that the Iraqi government is not looking after them. Um, and they also think that the international community is not looking after them. And we have seen in the past when ISIS was born, it was born from the frustration among the Sunni population in Iraq 
for the fact that um, the Shiite government was not looking after them, for the fact that uh, they were really um, second-grade citizens. And that's what people in Norwegia feel very much that they are. In general, if you if you see it, you're thinking that the, the incident happened yesterday, not before five years, because uh, it's not no happened, uh, as I mentioned. There is no real response from any humanitarian or government in that area. Actually, we don't know what's the reason. It's not like the incident happened before one year. It's more than six years to this incident. But there is no response from anyone. They they are thinking also and asking from us to ask uh, the Dutch government uh, to to don't neglect this this issue and they have to interest because they don't want their children to start thinking and blaming again the Dutch people and the Dutch government. We cannot, as I mentioned, uh, create. Um, like another group like ISIS because uh, this because ISIS for example is created from the the people who are suffering from the 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 the, the wrong uh, treatment with the with the people from the, as you know uh, a lot of people who who when the ISIS control on Iraq a lot of people joined with ISIS because they lost uh, because their father was in the prisons because the government also because the the, the they are still suffer they because they're suffering from the livelihood uh, uh, and uh, they cannot to work therefore they they joined with 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 ISIS we don't fra- f- uh, we don't want to make these children maybe if, for example if ISIS maybe will uh, control again to Iraq maybe these children are thinking because they will tell them that the, the Dutch did these things and you have to hate them again. We don't go through this this bad story. So what is it that the people in Huija are looking for from the Dutch? So there are two main requests. First, people in Huija don't understand why no one in the Netherlands has ever taken an interest in learning what exactly happened to them. Why no one has actually come to Havija and has apologized for the suffering that this single airstrike caused. When I went in for a talk uh, with, a, with a number of the victims, um, people were, uh, were able to set aside the fact that I was Dutch. They really wanted to tell me what had happened and what they needed. Although the anger towards the Dutch is, is huge, um, as I can understand. I, I know that Pax talked to about a hundred people, and all those people all wanted their story to be heard. I don't think that in Holland people are quite aware of how big the disaster was and how many people were hurt. And I think it is it it, it would be good if there were people from the Dutch uh, government, from the Dutch authorities, that went to Hawija and went to talk straight to people there and straight to people who uh, lost incomes and uh, lost uh, family members, uh, lost houses. Somehow many of the of the Dutch um, officials are scared to go to these areas. I think that if I can go in, so can um, the Dutch uh, officials and they should. And the second main thing that civilians have been asking for is that the Dutch authorities provide them with direct assistance instead of going through these international organizations. 
they need their needs to be assessed directly, which currently just isn't happening. Uh, they need the health treatment for their victims, uh, for maybe some people who loses their livelihoods to restore the, their livelihoods and also maybe provide them with the basic services and uh, address the their suffering, as I mentioned, the health issues, the livelihood issues, also uh, rehabilitate the, their markets, also rehabilitate their, uh, their buildings, their shelters, uh, also rehabilitate the, their neighborhoods, the, the water network, the, the electricity there. Saba, I want to thank you so very much for co-hosting the Civilian Protection Podcast today. No problem at all, Mark. It was an absolute pleasure to be here. And if you're listening to this episode and want to learn more, this research, which is a joint project between Arad, PAX, and Utrecht University's Intimacies of Remote Warfare program, will be published later this year. But I think today has already given us a glimpse of the human cost of that particular airstrike in Hawija. And what I take away from this is that we all, governments, militaries, but also the humanitarian sector and people everywhere, need to better realize the far-reaching toll of war on ordinary people. I mean, this was the impact of one airstrike. And there were thousands of airstrikes during the war in Iraq. And if we look at the rest of the world, we have Syria, we have Afghanistan, we have conflicts all over the world where things like this are happening, and we never really consider the long-term effects of one bombing. I'd like to turn now to Mohammed for him to close out the topic. And this is it's it's a simple thing, but I think I we hoping that in the future all of the ministries of defense or or any to take this this issue and this considers because uh, for example in the, in the Hawija incident there is more than 70 people were killed and more than 500 victims are affected by their cell their income their body it's um, it's a bad uh, incident we're hoping to we can stop all of this incident in the future The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Mark Arlasco, Aaron Bell, Saab Azim, with assistance from Annie Scheel, Monica Zura, Ari Tolani, and Selma van Oostvaard. It was produced by the Podcast Guru. Monica Zura made the designs and made sure we're online. And of course, we'd like to thank Mohammed Khattar and Judith Nurink for joining us as guests. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and get behind the scenes content. Find full interviews and upcoming episodes on our websites civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening.